Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Friends, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. You, you may be seated. So when I was in high school, my family took a, uh, a summer trip to Colorado. The reason why we went was because my sister was playing in a college softball showcase. She was getting recruited by some schools to play softball, and so we went to watch her play. And when we weren't on the softball diamond watching her pitch and hit and do her thing, we were doing Colorado stuff. We were hiking trails, we were rafting rivers, we were avoiding bears, you know, basic survival stuff when you're out in Colorado. And we went on one hike, as a family, and when uh, we were on this hike, we, we came across a sign that had a really interesting bit of trivia on it. It said that we were at the Continental Divide. And for those of you who aren't familiar, the Continental Divide is this imaginary boundary in the United States that determines where water ends up in, in the lower 48. So if you're a drop of water, whether you're a raindrop, a molecule in a river or a stream, if you fall on the eastern side of the Continental Divide, you're heading to the Atlantic Ocean. But if you fall on the other side of that, of that divide, of the continental divide, you're going to the Pacific. So this is this boundary marker in the United States that determines where all the water ends up. Now, it's an interesting piece of trivia, but what does that have to do with, uh, with Luke chapter 9 or our passage? Well, what I want to suggest is that Luke chapter 9 acts in a way as a continental divide in Luke's gospel that there is a pivot point or a hinge that's being, that's being made by Luke, who is recounting the life and events of Jesus, that in the early chapters of Luke, from chapter 1 all the way up through the midpoint of chapter 9, where uh, Luke's emphasis is for us to get to know who Jesus is, uh, what makes Jesus unique and distinct, and, and, why, uh, and why should we follow this Jesus. But from the other side of Luke chapter 9 all the way through the end, the shift focuses away from who Jesus is on to what Jesus came to do. So you could imagine Luke uh, 1 through the midpoint of chapter 9 describing Jesus' identity, who he is, and then you can look at the rest of the Gospel of Luke from, from chapter 9, and really you can put your finger on chapter 9, 51, and go all the way to the end and look at Jesus' activity, what Jesus came to do, and, and subsequently what Jesus is call, calling us, his followers, to do. And, and so we get 
uh, so leading up to this hinge moment is this interaction between Jesus and his disciples where Jesus brings his followers together and he asks them point blank the question, who do people say that I am? And that's, and that's been the question that I've been putting in front of us these past few weeks as we get to Jesus. Who is Jesus? And Jesus asks his followers with no pretense, with, with no nuance, who do people say that I am? And then, he, and then he gets some answers, and then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And then the answer comes from Peter, representing all of his disciples, and says, you are the Christ. You are God's promised Savior, Deliverer, King. And then from then on, Jesus begins to talk plainly with his disciples about what he's come to do. And while we didn't read about this in our passage in Luke, in Luke if you were to map on uh, Matthew's account of this, of this encounter and, and Mark's account, so Matthew 16 and Mark chapter 8, you actually find that there's a bit of tension in this narrative because once Jesus d- uh, commends Peter for his confession saying, yes, you're right, I, I am the Christ, I'm God's promised Savior King, then, he be- then Jesus begins to tell his followers, here's the kind of king I've come to be. Uh, I'm, I'm a king that's come uh, to, to go to the cross, to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And in the other two gospel accounts, Peter uh, tries to pull Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, Jesus, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's, that's not in the job description of the Christ. And Jesus, curiously and surprisingly even, rebukes Peter and says, you're, you're in the wrong here. And so I want us to keep in mind that as we read this passage, although there is no confrontation here between Peter and Jesus, this, this is happening in the background, and so I'm going to import a little bit of this altercation between Jesus and Peter as we wrestle with this idea of who is Jesus, the Son of God. And as we do that, I want us to focus on two things together in our time. I want us to look at, first, what Jesus came to do, and then secondly, what Jesus calls us, his followers, to do. What Jesus came to do, Jesus came to be our king, but the king that goes to a cross. And what Jesus calls us to do, he calls us to follow him to the cross as well. So let's unpack this first idea of what Jesus came to do. Uh, In our passage, we see uh, directly from Jesus in verse 22 what Jesus came to do. See, Jesus has just confirmed with his disciples that he is the Christ. He's God's promised Savior King. And on the heels of that great profession, Jesus uses a title to describe himself that that we encountered earlier in Luke's gospel, but he brings it back. It's that title of the Son of Man. And the the Son of Man comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel, and it's this mysterious figure uh, that rules uh, as God and with God. And uh, and Jesus is appropriating that title of Son of Man onto himself, that 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 promised Savior King of old, Jesus says, I am that person. But then Jesus goes a step further, that he takes this idea of the Son of Man, this, this promised Savior King, and he connects that idea to something that, no one else in the Jewish tradition had ever done up to that point, and that's to connect this idea of the Son of Man to the theme of suffering, that, that the Son of Man is one who suffers and dies. And do you notice the word must in, in verse 22? Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. It, what Jesus is saying here is that he's not so much predicting what might happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. As much as, as, much as he's saying, this is what's going to happen to me when I go to Jerusalem. You notice the difference? So Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and when I get there, uh, I might be persecuted, I might suffer, I might die. Jesus says, no, friends, we're going to Jerusalem, and when we get there, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be shamed. I'm going I'm to be put to death. 
but then I'm going to rise again from the dead, and I'm going to overcome death itself. Jesus is saying, you know all that power that you've seen me display in, in the miracles I performed? Well, I'm going to lay all that down. You know all that authority that I've, I, that I've demonstrated in my teaching, how people hang on every word and says, there's no one who's t- ever taught like this person. I'm not going to use my words to, to command an army or exercise my authority over other people. I'm going to use my authority to serve. Jesus says, you've seen all the evil I've cast out of people as I've uh, encountered the demonic and even exercised victory over the evil spirits. You see, I'm going to be overcome by that evil so that I can destroy that evil once and for all. See, Jesus isn't so much predicting uh, a possible future as he's telling the disciples plainly what's going to happen. And because Jesus talks about his mission in this way, that, that, that he can't renew the world unless he is a king who suffers and dies, uh, that he can't do, do away with all the evil in the world unless he is overcome by that evil and he's put to death. You, you see how in Jesus putting it in those, in those stark, plain terms that causes Peter to be uneasy because he doesn't want to follow a leader who gets defeated. He, he doesn't want to follow a, a leader who's, whose own power is overwhelmed by the power uh, by the power around him. And so the math doesn't compute in Peter's mind. And it doesn't compute in, in anybody's mind as well because you see, Jesus know, uh, Peter knows and the disciples know from both from their personal experience and really just from uh, a standard history class that people don't win by losing. That people, especially kings and empires and rulers, they win by winning. They win by uh, overwhelming all the power and forces that, that oppose them. And so uh, Peter is saying that, uh, that Jesus, this isn't how, this isn't how kingdoms uh, are ushered in. They, they don't come in through weakness. They don't come in through defeat. Kingdoms are established by victory. Uh, kingdoms come in uh, by winning. And Peter has this expectation that all this power that Jesus has displayed over nature, over disease and death, over uh, the evil spirits of the world, Peter is, is expecting Jesus's power to continue to remain undefeated and grow and get greater and greater. Uh, but Jesus curiously pulls aside Peter and says, no, Peter, you're in the wrong here. The idea of a crucified king was repulsive to Peter. And and Jesus says, "No, that's exactly the kind of Messiah I need to be. Uh, in order for me, the, in order for me to be the Messiah that you need me to be, I need to be a Messiah that suffers. I, I need to be a Christ that's crucified." For, for Jesus is in effect telling Peter that he cannot have the kingdom uh, that that uh, he he cannot ultimately have the kingdom that that God said he would have, in, except by way of suffering. That the kind of kingdom that that Jesus came to bring. Uh, doesn't circumnavigate or, or circumvent suffering. It, it actually uh, goes through the path of suffering. And so Peter uh, gets called out by Jesus. He's rebuked in this altercation as uh, that Peter pulls Jesus aside and sees, says, Jesus, I don't think you get it. And Jesus says, no, Peter, I don't think you get it. And can we take that moment between Peter and Jesus, their, their moment of disagreement, and, and, turn, and, turn the, and turn the focus on ourselves for a little bit? Because what are some of the ways... Where, where we miss it as well, where, where we misinterpret who Jesus is and what he came to do. Can I suggest maybe a couple of ways we, 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 get, it, we get it twisted, where we miss the mark? First, I think that this interaction between Jesus and Peter shows us how dangerous it can be for us to come to God with an agenda, that to come to God with, with our plans and tell God to sign and date here, please. 
See, Peter had a fixed idea in his mind about what the Christ was supposed to do, and he demanded that Jesus fit and fulfill those expectations. And in Peter's eyes, it, it wasn't a bad agenda. Like, Peter actually had great plans for Jesus. But, but Jesus tells Peter, no, those aren't the plans. Uh, the, the, I'm not a means to, to your ends, Peter. I have my own plans, and I'm an end in myself. And, and friends, I think we're often tempted to do the same as Peter, to come to God with our agenda, with our plans, our hopes for the future, our expectations of how certain things should go, and we, should, and we tell God uh, how to be God. We tell God how he ought to, to move and act in any particular situation. And if we're honest, isn't that what worry is? Like worry is going to God uh, with this idea that uh, we think what we know what a good God would do in the situation, and so we're worried he's going to get it wrong. <laughs> and so we stress and we're anxious, and, uh, and, we, and we stir ourselves up into a frenzy because we don't uh, trust that, that God really has our best interests at heart, that that because things aren't going to our plans or our agenda, that, that he's a God who isn't worth following, he isn't a God who's worth believing in. Jesus is saying that, that for us, uh, it can be disastrous and ruinous for us to come to God with our own agenda and our own plans. Even, even if we think they're good plans, Jesus says that, that they might be, uh, that, that, they, that if, if our plans are to be fulfilled, that might just give us the opposite result or impact that, that we were hoping to, to, to receive. And so, this altercation between Jesus and Peter can show us how dangerous it can be at times to come to God with an agenda rather than just trusting that God has a plan, that, that God is working out his purposes in our lives and in the world, even if it means that it's not going according to the way that we hope or expected. Uh, and so the, the challenge for us in this instance is do we trust God to be God when things aren't going the way that we hoped? Uh, when, when, as, as the the plans of our lives aren't unfolding in the way that we, that we wanted to. Can we trust that God is still doing something even in the midst of it, even if we can't understand it or see the whole picture the way that he does? But second, though, this, this interaction between Jesus and Peter helps us see that suffering and glory, that self-denial and happiness are not mutually exclusive. In Peter's mind, it's inconceivable that the, that the Messiah, the one with the greatest power, would ever be rejected and suffer and die. And in our day, we're tempted to think that, if, uh, that, that suffering is intolerable, that if something is going wrong and we're feeling some suffering in our life, it, it must mean that God is displeased with us, or maybe that we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing. And so, uh, or maybe that uh, if we're suffering, uh, maybe God doesn't even exist. And uh, while I don't know your particular pains and struggles this morning, can, can I point you to Jesus who came into this world not to avoid suffering, but to live a life of suffering, uh, to, to live the life uh, uh, of more suffering than any human life has ever lived, that if the life of Jesus shows us that if even the Son of God doesn't avoid life without navigating through suffering, then, then maybe the point of our lives isn't to avoid suffering at all costs. Uh, maybe it isn't to try to live the most comfortable, uh, easy life that we can live, but maybe it means that we find a way to follow God in the midst of suffering so that suffering doesn't destroy us, but suffering somehow transforms us into the kind of people that God would have us be. So, uh, and, if, and if we can look at the, at the person of Jesus whose suffering ultimately led to glory, then we can trust that we can trust God with our sufferings, that while we don't understand the, the pain and things we might be enduring in this moment, that, that if the story of Jesus tells us that, that suffering uh, is a precursor to glory, then maybe we can uh, trust God in the midst of our suffering and know that he will bring beauty 
out of the ashes of suffering that we experience. Uh, but then thirdly, though, I think in this moment uh, between Peter and Jesus helps us see that, uh, that Peter truly doesn't understand uh, or, or, or Peter really doesn't feel the need that, that Jesus must die for him. Peter doesn't understand that, that Jesus must die for him. Peter thinks that, that he's a good person, he's morally upright and respectable, and, and that you know, he and God are on good terms. But, but what Jesus is trying to tell Peter is that the reason why Jesus came into the world is because no one is good. That there, there's nobody who is standing rightly before God, and so in, in, including those people who have it all together. Uh, as I was reading through this passage, there was a, 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 a sentence by, by one of the commentators that I was consulting uh, that really stood out to me. He says that uh, on Jesus' statement about being rejected by the elders and religious leaders and the scribes, uh, he says that it's not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God. It's humanity at its very best. It, it, it's humanity at its very best that kills the Son of God. It's, it's the religious establishment, the people who, who ought to know how to, how to lead people into, the, into intimate life with God. Uh, he's, put the, he's put the death at the hands of the state, the, the organization that, that, should, that is built to create a flourishing human society. It's humanity at its best that crucifies the Son of God. And so, in other words, when it comes to why the world is the way it is, why, why things at every level are so broken and impossible to repair, it's because we're all guilty and complicit. There is no one who is truly good. All of us need a savior to come and die for us. All of us need to be rescued from the, from the mess that we've made. No one is good, Jesus says. And, and, and Jesus says, unless I suffer and die in your place, you'll never have peace with God. You'll never experience true rest. See, Jesus came to be the king, and he came to, to be the king that we need. And, this, and the king that we need wins by losing. Jesus goes to the, to the lowest depths in order to be raised to the highest heights for us. He, he, he said he must suffer and die and, and, and be rejected. But he also says he must rise again. He must come back from the dead. And if that's what Jesus came to do, then, then what's he calling us to do? That's our second point. What is Jesus calling us to do? Well, simply put, friends, Jesus is calling us to go to the cross with him. Jesus says he, he must go and suffer and die, and friends, he's, he says we must go and die too. Now, our quote of reflection from Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes from his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, and, and Bonhoeffer says when Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a woman, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die, and that's what Jesus is calling us to do, and if you look at verses 24 to, to 26, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself nothing, take up your comfort, and follow your dreams. Right? That, that, that's, that's not what he says. That, that's, that's what our world wants us to, to embrace. That's the message that uh, our culture is, is telling us to live into at every moment of our lives. But Jesus says something different. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's the call of Jesus. Negatively put, it's deny yourself and pick up your cross. Positively put, Jesus is, Jesus is saying, come and follow me. And Jesus gives us some reasons why we ought to do that. You notice the, the three fours in verses uh, 24 to 26 for that, that purpose clause. Jesus says, why should you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? Verse 24, because if you try to save your life your way, you're going to lose your life. But if you lose your life by going my way, you're going to find it. 
You're going to experience life. Verse 25, Jesus says, because why does it matter if you get everything else in the world, but you get it at the cost of your own soul? What's the point if you get all the amount of success and acclaim that you, that you set out for if at the end of the day you forfeit the most important thing, your very soul? And then in verse 26, Jesus says, because if you don't take up your cross now, you're not going to pick up a crown later. If, if you're ashamed of me and my words, Jesus says, I'm going to be ashamed of you on that day when my kingdom is fully established. Jesus says, if you don't take up your cross now, you're not going to pick up a cross later. Now, these words of Jesus have been called a lot of things. They've been called countercultural. They've been called unintuitive. Some people would say they've even been called crazy. But, but one thing we can't say about Jesus in these words here in this passage in Luke is that they're not loving. See, we read these words, and we find out who the real lover of life is in this passage, and it's Jesus. Jesus says that if you really love your life, if you really want to live a life of meaning and purpose, it's not found by following your intuitions and going your own way. It's found in following after me, of, of laying down your right of self-determination, uh, to laying down your sense of control, to laying down your ambitions and following after me. And, and in this call to, to pick up our cross and follow him, Jesus isn't saying that we should somehow hate ourselves or be filled with self-loathing or self-hatred. Jesus is just saying, forget yourself. He, he's saying, put your ego to the side that, that what I'm looking for is not self-actualization, it's self-abdication. It's someone who, who, follows, who follows Jesus at the expense of, of our own reputation, our own sense of of, of, uh, of, of our own definitions of, of success and, and purpose that we, that we chase after Jesus with everything that we have. And uh, author C.S. Lewis uh, puts it this way, and I, I think it's, it's, very, it's very poignant in the way that he says it. He says, uh, the principle, this principle runs through life from top to bottom. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. When you look for Christ, you will find him and find everything else thrown in. And so, friends, what does it look like for us to die to ourselves? Uh, how can we take up our cross, particularly as we head into the season of Lent, where we walk with Jesus to Jerusalem uh, on the road to his own suffering, death, and resurrection? Uh, this would be a great question for you to wrestle with this week, uh, both individually and then corporately, whether that's in a community group or with a group of trusted friends or, or, or a mentor. But it, let me share some, some ways that I was thinking through this question of, of how to answer, what does it look like to, to pick up my cross? Um, so here, here, here's maybe some ways that, that uh, I'm gonna commit and then uh, maybe you can take them as well and, and expand on them. Um, but what would it look like for me to take up my cross? I think first it, it might be to, to die to my alarm clock. Uh, that we can make time to meet with God in his word and prayer, uh, wake up a little bit earlier in the day in order to spend time with God uh, so, that, uh, 
much that we, I carve out time to spend time with Jesus before the day gets too, gets too busy. Uh, or I can die to my sense of being right, uh, where I can confess my sins and own up to my faults and my relationships with my spouse, my kids, uh, my church community, um, my neighbors, where I can extend forgiveness where, where, I've, where I've wronged others and I can receive forgiveness where I've been wronged. Or maybe I can, I can die, we can die to our reputations this Lent where we um, are unashamed, we're unafraid to embrace our Christian identities, whether it's on campus or uh, at our jobs or in our, or in our careers or in our neighborhoods, that we can let people know that, that we're Christians and that, uh, that that matters more than our own advancement or our popularity, that we can tell our friends that, uh, that we go to church and we'd be happy to pray for them, to take, our, to take what's going on in their lives to our God who has the power uh, to work and move in the lives of others, where we, even have oppor- where we can even share what we believe with others as opportunity presents itself, that we can die, our, to, die to our reputations. Uh, but thirdly, though, maybe that we can die to our bank accounts, where we, uh, where we don't go along with the culture that the, that the highest good uh, of, of our lives is to be the one with the biggest bank accounts. So we're not stressed about how much money is coming in, how much, uh, what, what, what's the amount in our, uh, in our retirement accounts or how our, you know, how our investments are doing. But we can have an attitude towards money that, that doesn't make it the, the driver of our days, that it doesn't dictate the decisions we make day in and day out, that we can actually maybe even radically give away some of our wealth, whether that's to uh, a local church or a campus ministry or a missionary serving overseas where, where we can actually release some of, those, some, some of those resources that God has given us to, to advance his kingdom throughout the world because it's in letting go of our wealth that, that our wealth gets less of a hold of us. But then maybe one other way we can follow Jesus, die to ourselves, is that we can die to our sense of self-reliance. Uh, we, can, we can die to our sense of uh, the belief that we can live our lives uh, in our own strength and in our own power. Uh, no, no person is an island, and that's especially true in the Christian life. We weren't made to live life alone. We were made to live life in community. And so maybe during this Lent, this might be a, a focused time for you to, to get plugged into a community, whether that's in our church uh, or on campus or, or in some other way where you surround yourself with a, a body of friends who are also following Jesus that they can also help you follow Jesus better. Or maybe if you're here, and another way to die to your sense of self-reliance, that if if you're here and you come into these doors and pretend that everything is okay when it's not, maybe this is an opportunity to actually die to that that facade, to actually come in here and say, I have needs. There are are things that I need need prayer for. Uh, There there is a a financial struggle that I have. Here's a struggle that I'm having in a relationship that's going on right now, and, and, I, and, and being honest with those things because it's in being honest and transparent about where we're hurting, about where we're wounded, that, that, the, that the miracle of grace can begin to heal, that, that, the, that the miracle of grace can begin to transform. See, friends, uh, the call of discipleship is high. It, it really is, and Jesus calls this path the way of weakness, uh, but I, I have a point of issue with Jesus because if you've ever tried to walk this path of weakness for any length of time, you know how hard it is to follow Jesus. And so where do you get the strength to follow this, this kind uh, of God, to, to walk in this way of weakness? Well, we get that strength from looking at Jesus, knowing that Jesus walked this path before us, that Jesus isn't calling us to, to walk any kind of life that he himself has not already gone before and done for us, that Jesus, uh, 
gone before us and, and endured more suffering than any, than any single person has ever experienced. He, he died the death on the cross. But then Jesus was raised to life so that he could extend that victory to us. And so that he, Jesus has risen so that he can come back to where we are on that path, that, that, that own road of, of self-denial and picking up our cross. And so Jesus can walk alongside of us. Jesus walked the road before us, and now he walks the road alongside of us, giving us the strength and the, and the encouragement and the nourishment and the challenge for us to keep going. The, the call of discipleship is high, but, but it's worth it, friends. Uh, as one of my close pastor friends has said, he says, you regret sin every single time, but you never regret following Jesus. You never regret following Jesus. And, and so, friends, my, my encouragement to you is, as we enter into the season of Lent, as we've seen who Jesus is, the Son of God, the, the one who is more than a teacher and a healer, more than a miracle worker an exorcist, as, as an exorcist, as we see Jesus on his terms as the Son of God come for us, let's commit to follow him together into the season of Lent and beyond. Because Jesus is the King, the King of glory. And as we look for Christ, we will see that we do find him, and we find with him everything and more. Would you pray with me?